hot yet? Underneath, it's very hot. This is Bonnie Reichert and her dad, Saul. That cholent looks delicious. It looks like the old cholent. Well, let's see. Bonnie's a chef and a journalist, and they're sharing a meal that Saul remembers from his childhood in Poland, something called cholent. You're going to want salt. Bonnie is working towards perfecting her recipe for cholent. This is her third version she's made in the past few months. It wouldn't be traditional, but I would add fresh herbs or maybe some lemon juice to make it a little more, a little brighter, juicier. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that the Reicherts are obsessed with food. Food was the center of all of our lives, all the time. Everybody was a cook in my family. Everybody was in love with food. And in her upcoming book, How to Share an Egg, a true story of love, hunger, and plenty, Bonnie explores what she considers the guiding principle of her life, that food equals life. Through family stories, her own experiences, and recipes that hold special meaning, Bonnie weaves her family's devastating losses in the Holocaust with her own coming-of-age story. When I was a child, there was always the, the sort of the idea that I would write my dad's story, that I would write the story of his survival and the things that had happened to him. And I, I wanted to do it, but I couldn't do it. It, it, I didn't think I was worthy of it. I didn't know how to do it. I couldn't ask the questions I would have had to ask to be able to do it properly. It wasn't until Bonnie visited Poland, where she saw the sights of the horrors her family experienced, that she felt she could find a way into these stories. And I started to see that maybe instead of writing my father's story, I could write my story of being my father's daughter. And a little later, I started to realize that maybe I could tell that story through food, which was this theme that came up again and again and again throughout not just my life, but my father's life too. I'm Tina Pitaway, and more with Bonnie and Saul Reichert next on Countless Journeys from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. Countless Journeys. All of our chefs represent either our grandmothers or our mothers or our aunts or the land we come from or the place we grew up in and we put ourselves on the plate. It was, my home was everything. People came in and wanted to talk to me and whenever they came in to buy a loaf of bread, they had to make sure that I knew that they bought a loaf of bread and sat down and wanted to talk to me. It was Portuguese women coming here to build a better life, but also to help build Canada. It, it's, it's scary to make that change. Our, our change was absolute. There was no going back, so it was a, a brave thing for my parents to do. Instead of feeling torn between my two realities, I decided to feel happy wherever I am. Growing up in Edmonton in the 1970s, the kitchen was one of Bonnie Reichert's favorite places to be. I always loved to cook. I loved to be in the kitchen. I loved to have the kitchen to myself, which was hard to get in my house. I have three older sisters, 
All of them liked to cook too. My grandmother, you know, it was a, a very popular room. But when I could be in the kitchen by myself, it was like a laboratory. I loved to play around in there and do things I knew I wasn't really supposed to do, like fry and chop and bake. And I was messing around in there whenever I could. Her love of food came naturally enough. Her parents, Saul and Toby Reichert, owned several restaurants throughout the city. And her maternal grandmother was a source of steady inspiration as well. Her name was Sarah Teradash. She was from a little town near Odessa in Ukraine. It was 1917, the pogroms, and she was basically run out of her home as a teenager. And so that was an earlier wave of immigration in Edmonton. Teddy's was the name of the first restaurant her parents owned. It was my whole life. People came in and wanted to talk to me. And whenever they came in to buy a loaf of bread, they had to make sure that I knew that they bought a loaf of bread and sat down and wanted to talk to me. So it was in my social life. It was from 11 to 11 for many years, and I loved it. It was my home, was everything. One side had little booths along the wall. The booths had these mini jukeboxes. You could put a coin in and choose your music. And then down the center was a counter, and there was a soda fountain. And then the menu was, Dad kept the menu at first that the place came with. So it was chili con carne and hot turkey sandwiches and mashed potatoes and like real comfort food. Toby's mother, she was a real great chef, Jewish chef. And when we opened a place called the Carousel, I engaged her to be the chef. And she made the most wonderful food, blintzes and knishes. She made the best corned beef. And to this day, we've made some corned beef with her recipe. And then he decided to renovate when I was a young teenager. It was an emporium. It was two stories. When you came in the front, there was what we called the deli, and that had the corned beef that we were known for. And then on the other side of that wall was a lounge. And then upstairs was a dining room and a dance floor. A dance floor with a disco ball. And lights in the floor, which when I was, when it opened, I was 13 years old, was about the most exciting thing, you, you know, I could have imagined. Teddy's was where Saul landed his first job when he arrived in Edmonton in 1948, before becoming its owner in the 1950s. Teddy's is also where he met Bonnie's mother, Toby. My mother came into Teddy's as a teenager. Maybe she was in high school. I was at the cash register. And she came to pay her bill, and she had had a tomato juice. And let's say the tomato juice was five cents. And my mother said to my father, who was working the cash register, how dare you charge five cents for a tomato juice? I couldn't buy a whole can of tomato juice for five cents. I remember that conversation very vividly because it was very unusual. So that was the kind of girl that my mother was, very feisty. Saul Reichert was an orphan when he arrived in Canada, the sole surviving member of his immediate family. When he sailed to Canada, he had two dollars in his pocket and he did not know a soul. 
Saul arrived at Pier 21 aboard the SS Sturgis. The Red Cross was there, and they give us milk and cookies or milk and cake or something. And then we got on the train to go west. Canadian Jewish Congress sponsored around 1,100 people from, from Europe, from the camps. He was part of a group of 1,123 war orphans that were allowed to come to Canada if they had a Jewish family sponsor them. It was a very special list, and he got on that list. And he lived, when he came to Edmonton, with this family, the Margolis family. How to share an egg brings us deeply into Saul's experience in the Second World War. Saul was the beloved only boy in a family of girls, headed by his widowed mother. My dad was born in a little place called Pabianitz, or Pabianitze, which is uh, a small town near Lodz in Poland. He came through the war with very little family. His mother and sisters died. September the 1st, 1939. I remember there were explosions all around us and people were running out of their homes into the street and they were huddling against the buildings. They were moved from their home in Pabinitz, in their own town, into the ghetto in Pabinitz. So still in their own town, but they had to leave their home and go inside this ghetto. Uh, we were at that ghetto till 1942. In 1942, we were told, get out of the home and take whatever we can. And that was a very, very traumatic night. They were deported to Lodge. From Pabianis to Lodge. Now that was a real, real nightmare. Lodge is about 15 kilometers, and they had a streetcar from Pabianis to Lodge. And then they asked the old people to come forward. Most of the people that came forward, they just took him to a place, Helmo, we heard. As they took out the older people, they shot them and killed them right away. And how my mother, her name was Adele Rachel, how she managed to get us onto the streetcar and from Fabianitz to Lodge, that we lived for another two and a half years is an amazing thing that I can never figure out how she did it. Having somehow survived being murdered along with most of the older residents of the Pabanitz ghetto, Saul's mother faced another huge challenge upon entering the Lodge ghetto. The Lodge ghetto was a starvation factory. There was not enough food. People were dying in the streets. It was a thoroughly miserable, life-threatening existence there. My mother got lucky, I don't know, or lucky or smart. She got a job at a place where you handed out vegetables, and my sister got a job where they handed out soup. Because when we went for, for vegetables, she threw out an extra couple. She took a risk that they would catch her. 
They will punish her, but she took that risk. And my sister was in the kitchen. When you're in the kitchen, you got a ladle of soup. And the ladle of soup consisted of soup and maybe one potato. And my sister, when we went to get the soup, we got a, a ladle full of potatoes, very little water. This is the kind of thing that saved our life in the ghetto because when I went to Birkenau and I was in front of Mengele and I saw one man goes this way and one man goes this way with the, with the, he had a baton there and there was a couple soldiers with dogs standing there and with guns and he was pointing with his baton this way or that way and the way if you looked like you're going to die because you were starved in the ghetto, they, right away they put you to the crematorium. But if you looked healthy that they can get labor out of you, you put to the living side. And I was of the lucky ones that I was pointed to the living side because of my mother who and my sister who were giving as extra food and extra, you know, extra vegetables, extra potatoes in the soup. His mother was, was amazingly resourceful. She, you know, figured out how to save my father's life so that I can be here talking about this right now. They stayed together there and um, were on the, one of the last transports from there to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And when they get, got off the train there, um, he was told to go one direction, and his mother and sisters went the other direction. And all we could hear is dogs barking, and Germans yelling, rouse, rouse, you know what that means, and uh, get out. And uh, immediately, the men were put to one side, and the women and children were put to the other side. And I went over to one side, and I could see my mother and sisters going to the other side in one long line. It was hard to really see any uh, faces, but they could stay waved and say goodbye. And, and uh, so that's the last time I saw any of them. You can't imagine how, how frightening it was. The dogs and the Germans with the guns and the, and the uh, screaming and hollering and shooting was just most terrible, terrible day that I remember. He went to work and we had terrible work. We were digging ditches, very, very deep ditches. But it was very, very deep. It was very, very hard work. In the chaos of all of this, Saul was reunited with a cousin, Abe. And we had to carry those railway ties to take him from one place to the other because they had the railway ties with the railway wagons to take from one place to the other. I remember when I was liberated. I was liberated on May the 8th, 1945. I was with a hundred other guys who were marched by the SS 
and we were overnight at the barn to sleep because they, they, even the German soldiers needed sleep. And in the morning when they called us, everybody to get up and come. We heard the guns already, so we knew that the Americans are very close. And they told us to get out. And I decided not to get out, to hide in the, on, on a haystack. And I heard them call, come down, come down, or else we'll find you, we'll shoot you. I didn't go down. And after a little while, I don't know how long it was, I heard voices that said, come on, come on, the Americans are here, the Americans are here. So I finally believed it, I came down. And I was so excited, of course, I, well, I'm going to live, I'm not going to die. The, the whole thing was over, so you're going to die, you're going to die, and now you're going to live. The title of Bonnie's memoir is taken from an encounter that Saul and Abe had in those first few days of being liberated. Underfed for years, the starving men walked through the German countryside in search of something to eat. And we didn't know where to go, what to do. We were just left in the world all by ourselves. So, of course, we started knocking at doors and would they give us any food? Well, they gave us an egg. One egg, that's all they can spare. So I had my cousin and I said, well, we are two people, how are we going to share this egg? Loss, trauma, sharing, hunger, hope. The themes that ran through Saul's experience found their ways into the stories he would tell when Bonnie was growing up. And these are themes and stories that she explores in her memoir. It came in dribs and drabs. He didn't sit me down and tell me the whole story, but he did tell stories. And he, he had a way of telling the stories that made them not as scary as they really were. So he didn't lie. <laughs> he didn't even really sugarcoat. It was more the tone. I don't know how a person could come with that kind of baggage and that kind of history and know intuitively how to share just the right amount, not too much, but it wasn't a big secret, uh, and, and raise a family with this trauma in the background without it becoming, um, you know, an overpoweringly dark force. So to unpack that, um, on a sort of day-to-day -day level, I think he, he gave the information that we needed when we needed it, but he didn't hide either. So he somehow found the balance. I don't know how he did it, honestly. I don't know how he knew. When I was a child, there was always the, the sort of the idea that I would write my dad's story, that I would write the story of his survival and the things that had happened to him. And I, I wanted to do it, but I couldn't do it. It, it. I didn't think I was worthy of it. I didn't know how to do it. I couldn't ask the questions I would have had to ask to be able to do it properly. 
But things changed for Bonnie after she made not one, but two trips to Poland. So I had grown up with the feeling that we did not need to go back to Poland. This was not something that was important. We knew what had happened. We, um, uh, you know, my dad had had enough experience for all of us, and there was no need to go back. He did not really want us to go back. He didn't want to go back. But in 2015, Saul heard from an extended family member that they had learned of a grave site in Warsaw. He got a call that there was a tomb of an ancestor, his ancestor, in Warsaw. Warsaw has a, a massive Jewish cemetery still, and relatives had discovered this tomb in Warsaw. My grandfather, who was in Warsaw, his name was Shlomo Rothblatt. They called him Shlomo Hasid. I have named after him. The tomb of his maternal grandfather was there. And all of a sudden, he turns on a dime and he says, I want to go. I want to go see this tomb in Warsaw. He didn't want to do anything else. He didn't want to go back to the camps. He didn't want to go to Pabianitz, where he was from. He just wanted to see the tomb and come home. And I was faced with a choice. Uh, I did not want to go. I was quite afraid to go. I had always felt quite afraid uh, of going to Poland. Um, but I could either, he was going anyway. I could be part of it or not be part of it. So we went, and my dad was satisfied. We saw the tomb. It was, you know, quite a happy occasion. We, we came home. We were there and back in five days. And he was done, but I was not done. That happened to be a beginning for me instead of an end. I came home and I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about just little things. Uh, one of them was the food and how familiar the food was. The way that it, the language started to come back to my dad over the five days that we were there. And I couldn't repress the feeling that I had unfinished business there. And what ended up happening is that a friend of mine was leading a trip a short time later back to Poland. And this was a, a full-on Holocaust trip to all the towns, to lodge where the lodge ghetto had been, to all of the concentration camps. And I just decided that I had to go back. So I did the trip. And it was, it was very, very difficult. And it was, you know, there were some absolutely harrowing moments on that trip. But after I came back, I, I felt for the first time like I could kind of wrap my arms around all of it. And I started to see that maybe instead of writing my father's story, I could write my story of being my father's daughter. And... A little later, I started to realize that maybe I could tell that story through food, which was this theme that came up again and again and again throughout not just my life, but my father's life too. It wouldn't be traditional, but I would add fresh herbs or maybe some lemon juice or something to make it a little more modern and to give it a little bit of a 
a little. It would make it juicier. A little brighter, juicier. Some more water. More water. Okay. More water. I'm not done. I'm not done creating it. No. It's about the midway point. I'm about halfway, and obviously more salt. Recipe development is an iterative process. You make and you fix and you make and you fix and you make and you fix. So the first time I made it, it was almost a disaster. I didn't put enough water. It cooked overnight. The beans and the barley soaked up all the water. It was very dry. On top of that, my father had told me to use brisket because what does he remember? He was a little child. And in fact, brisket is also too dry a meat, and it works much better with short rib meat that has more fat. So the first time was not a good showing. The second time was much better, um, and I'm still working on it and hoping to get it better. But I have to weigh the competing demands of making it just like he remembers and making it something that that I think is delicious in the modern world and in, in my own cooking. So that's a little like a, a microcosm of the book. It's mine, it's his, it's both of ours, it's shared. In her book, How to Share an Egg, Bonnie's both recreating traditions as well as honoring and preserving the memories her dad has of this very special dish. So he would talk about Cholent and how his mother would make this dish. The custom was each household would make their own cholent and then they would carry the pots to the village bakery. It's designed to cook Friday night and all day Saturday. And Friday before Shabbat, many people were coming with their little pots and the pots were sort of wrapped around in a towel and took it into the baker. And slide them into the bread oven so that they would cook there at the bread oven overnight and they would pick them up on Saturday after services. And you've got this hot stew that has been cooking all this time. There's two smells that I remember. One was Friday coming to, from school and the smell of Shabbat cooking. Whatever mom was cooking for Shabbat, maybe fish and, and roast beef or chicken. So there was a lovely smell. And another one was the cholent smell when they opened it up on Saturday for lunch. When you opened up the cover, the smell permeated the whole building. Yeah, it's very good. I didn't put garlic. Do you think your mother would have put garlic? Garlic? No. No. But kishka. Yeah. Kishka, you have to go buy. So I didn't put that in. But I could do that next time. Okay. That's pretty good. Mm. Yeah, it's very good. When I was a child, he did talk about cholent. <laughs> it, it's such a funny word and I never heard anybody else say it. You know those, those words that you, your parents say and sometimes you're not sure if they're even real words. So cholent was one of those words for me. And 
uh, I didn't even really know it existed in the outside world. I, the sort of the penny dropped for me when I went to synagogue and after services they served Choland and I thought oh my gosh like this is a <laughs> this is a real thing so it took me a little while to realize that we could make it we could just make it <laughs> it you know you didn't have to go back um, in time and space to create it and of course I mean my sisters and I we are always aware of what our father went through so that we could be here. I, I think that we are always carrying that in our heads and our hearts. So what a simple, easy way to make him happy. I often ask, well, how come you can have such a healthy attitude? But I'm managing to put away my crying nights one side and my loving life. I love it. I survived. Did I survive? How could I survive? What can I do? What should I do with the years that I've left? How come I am so lucky? What can I do to remember my family? How can I honor them? But the years go by and I am even today, I love to see my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. And they're so beautiful and they're so loving. But I see what happened and I see what's happening and what was and what is. It's just beyond words. It's just, uh, it overpowers me. Bonnie Reichert's memoir, How to Share an Egg, a true story of love, Hunger and Plenty will be published in Canada in 2024 by Appetite by Random House and Ballantine Books in the United States. If you'd like to hear more stories like this and help new listeners discover this podcast, make sure to rate Countless Journeys on your favorite podcast app or leave us a review. Countless Journeys comes to you from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21, located at the Halifax Seaport. I'm Tina Pitaway. Bye for now.